0: Welcome to the BAD webinar. Folks, today we have a special treat. Let me begin by saying, My name is Nadim Al Haq, and we are at the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. When we are getting onto our daily webinar, or regular webinar, I should say, welcome uh, Professor Mary Miller. I'm deeply grateful to Mary Miller for taking our time to talk to us. As you know, we seek out the best academics we can. To bring them to pakistan Uh, zoom has democratized the space for us so we can get all the best people to come and speak to us you will recall that for the last 40 years we've been trying to bring them physically to pakistan and now um, technology is helping us to get these ideas to you so i urge you to listen carefully and frame your questions and mary will take some questions but before i go any further let me say mary miller is a professor in northumbria uh, she's a well-known uh, author of many books, but uh, the re- recent book on money and development, um, the money and uh, debt, has created somewhat of a stir. So we thought we should listen to her. She's also the chair of a uh, special initiative in her university, which is Sustainable Cities. Um, at some point, inshallah, we'll try and get her to talk about that too. But today, we'll dis- discuss debt and uh, uh, money. And uh, with that, I'll go over to Mary. Mary, the floor is yours. Please go ahead.
1: My talk is about the development and the democratization of money. As my next slide shows, there are two alternative views of money. Uh, In the general literature, money is seen as a useful economic instrument, uh, but a neutral and useful, nothing not important in its own right versus the idea of, of money as an active economic agent that constructs economies. Naturally, I take the, the second view. I think that money has been underrated and, um, and uh, it, uh, it, its role, its potential role in uh, change, achieving social change, as uh, presumably an Institute of Development Economics wants to achieve, achieve change. As my next slide shows, Um, I'm I'm linking the um, position of money um, as a a power structure in society with a condition where money is not the most important power structure. doesn't mean to say that money is not not there. Money is present in all societies, but it's not an organising principle. So my, uh, my vertical axis is between where money is a structure of power in its own right to where other structures are more important than money, and money just becomes a, a useful instrument. I also make a distinction on on the horizontal uh, di- um, dimension of between public power and private power. And as you can see, the um, the that breaks us into four 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 boxes, as it were. The bottom left-hand corner is economic domination. The uh, uh, where you have you don't have money power as the uh, as the main mechanism, but, um, and power is really in private hands. But um, uh, ab- above that, we have a situation where there is private power, but, but uh, money is the organizing principle, and that is the market. Uh, moving to the other side of, of, of the, the table, um, where you have public power organized by money, uh, you have uh, what I've called sovereign taxation, a, a public money a, a principle. And the bottom box, which is the box uh, um, I would hope we could eventually get to, uh, where, where you have public power, but it is democratically structured and it isn't, money isn't the driving force, it's just an enabler, a servant, not a master, as is often said. And I call that economic democracy. So I'm going to uh, explore uh, explore all these uh, boxes in turn. So in my next slide, I I take that bottom uh, corner box. Um, I presume if we're interested in development, we're aiming to get to somewhere um, out of the the bottom corner box, the economic domination through direct exercise of power. This goes from the relatively benign Domestic and subsistence labour, which of course can be more more, um, uh, more, more, more naked, naked power than that, but feudal command over labour and resources to the more brutal forms, slavery, including debt slavery, imperialism and colonisation, race, caste, ethnic and gender hierarchies, and finally banditry, warlordism, drug cartels, mafia. I presume that uh, if you're doing a development uh, process there is some aspect of that that is uh, one of those categories is uh, uh, the main sort for of form of power i stress that this is uh, where the power is is private it's not a structural power it's not an organization, a, a politically organized power uh, the point about this uh, no money money not organizing the system and private power it is it is the naked power that certain individuals have or groups and individuals have over other groups and individuals. So um, the aim, I presume, of, of economic development is to get out of that, that box, as it were, and into one of the others. Is it developing the market? Is it developing the state? Or hopefully, is it looking for a building of some kind of economic democracy? In my next slide, I look at the, the box um, above economic domination. That is the market where you have private power, but through control of a money-organized money system. Therefore, in this model, economic power is located in the market sector, and the search for profit in money terms drives the economy. We're very familiar with this with the market economy. But there is a power element, the, the, the um, ownership and control of money, having money, investing money, borrowing money, justifies control of wage, labour, resources and consumption. The rich are considered to have the best use, to make the best use of resources. They're justified in whatever consumption pattern they want. They're justified in hiring wage, labour and, uh, uh, and uh, the usual critique of, of the market system. But the, when you come to the money element of the market sector, it's banking and borrowing that are the key elements of the money system. I see this, as I describe in the next slide, as the banking circuit. The bank, the bank money circuit is, as, you, as, as would, would be obvious, lending by banks, and those, those uh, loans are repaid with interest. Uh, at least they are where you, you have symptoms that allow, uh, um, a system that allows interest. Uh, there are, uh, obviously, Islamic banking has a, has a different model. But this model is the uh, the, the the loan repayment with interest model, um, and uh, as you can see, the bottom arrow is bigger. This is because whatever the bank lends uh, in in commercial loans, obviously has to be repaid with interest. Therefore, the the bank, if it's the commercial bank, uh, and has to uh, become profitable, then it has to uh, gain more money in than it let than it lends out. So. So uh, it is a a constant, um, there's a constant circuit between bank lending and and loans. Now, the next slide shows that there is a a banking myth, which is very common in the models of, uh, of the market economy. That when banks in a market sector lend money, they are merely acting as a mediator between savers and borrowers. That is their neutral instruments. They collect in the the, uh, deposits from people as they bring their money uh, to the bank for safety or for transfer or for savings or whatever. And these deposits enable the bank to make loans. The only problem with that um, model of where banks get their money from is it doesn't answer the question, where do the deposits come from? Where uh, Where does the bank, where do people get the money to make the deposits in the first case that allow the banks to lend money? Uh, so as the, uh, as the next slide shows, uh, this, the, the, the contemporary thinking, uh, which is now shared by a lot of the main banking uh, organisations, particularly the IMF, or uh, like the Bank of England quoted here, or the, Fed or the US Fed, they, uh, they realise that the money for the deposit uh, in the banks comes from the banks themselves. That is, there's no other source of money other than the, uh, of, of an increase in the money supply. I mean, obviously, money circulates and goes from hand to hand. But the, uh, but the creation of, of money, as the Bank of England quarterly bulletin acknowledged, as late as 2014... It is very recent that the banks have accepted this model of uh, this, uh, this uh, theory of, of where the banks get the money from. The, majority, the, I, the quote says The majority of money in the modern economy is created by commercial banks making loans. And this is the key. Rather than banks receiving deposits and then lending them out, bank lending creates the deposits. Now, this takes that model of the circuit that I showed you. Uh, one question further on, because, um, uh, no, I'll, I'll sorry, I, I lost my thread there. Um, so the, the next slide um, ta- shows the myths of money um, in, uh, uh, in that lie behind our understanding of how money works within a market system. And if you def- uh, look at most economics textbooks the implication are is that money was invented by the market to overcome the limitation of bar- barter exchange this is the classic story that the, you had the baker the 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 the, the tailor the, uh, the 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 butcher and they uh, they they sh- they swap directly swap through barter this is a theory uh, they originally swap through barter but this is very inconvenient because the butcher didn't want what the hat maker had and the hat maker didn't have what the tailor had. So uh, they, uh, money, money um, was invented by the, by, by the market to overcome this problem and to put a, uni, a universal equivalent, as it's sometimes called, uh, a medium between uh, which all other exchanges can take place. The link to the other myth of this is that the original and ideal money, therefore, was the commodity that was chosen by the market. And this is the um, a commodity with intrinsic value, that is, precious metal, gold, silver. Now, the, the problem with these myths of money is that, first of all, there's no there's no evidence of historical barter exchange in any in any volume. I mean, there might have been individual barters in here and there, but the idea of a of a Economy um, uh, organised on a barter principle just just never existed, and therefore the um, uh, therefore the idea that although there was certainly precious metal money, gold and silver that is, has been uh, has been invented on several occasions and uh, and brought into circulation, it's not by any means the only uh, uh, form of money. In fact, there's many many forms of of money all over through history, all over the world. And uh, countries, for instance, like China, um, a major country through history, has never been fixated on uh, gold and silver, and and incidentally had paper money long before um, uh, most other societies had had really got going at all. but the, the 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 existence of these myths that money is uh, invented by the market and belongs to the market and should ideally be gold and silver um, means that despite its uh, as uh, these purists would see its degraded nature in modern societies, it's made of base metal coin, made of notes or plastic or even computer codes it's insisting, the model of the the market system insists that modern money, like precious metal, is seen as being in short supply. And this is a a key to the paralysis of more radical thinking on economics, because what is seen as limiting uh, what happens is that uh, it's always always, uh, prevented by the query, well, where's the money to come from? Who's going to pay? Um, So as the next slide shows, we we get to a point where neoliberalism, which is the dominant kind of Western model of uh, of the market system, sets up states versus markets. Um, Public public spending is is seen there as, as, as only, since the source of all money is the market, then when it comes to the public sector, public spending, the right-hand side of the original diagram I put up, any public spending is seen as financed by taking money from, from the taxpayer. And the taxpayer is assumed to be part of the private sector. They seem to be hard-pressed private sector taxpayers who are seen as the wealth creators. And therefore, um, the myths of money being... A, 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 belonging to the market and being generated by the market, is justifies these proposals that every time you put a request for um, radical development, social change, sharing of systems, uh, more more equal societies or more development, you will be told, well, where's the money to come from? There's no magic money tree. Uh, The assumption is, therefore, that the state and this model is, is this very remarkably throughout uh, the Western market economies, the neoliberal, what I call handbag economics, uh, has an analogy of the state as a dependent household. The state must live within its means, it must pay its way, it mustn't get into debt, uh, it must, uh, must cover all costs, it mustn't borrow. So the, the state is, t- is treated, the public, public, public economy, the public sector, is treated as a as a dependent and um, rather like a sort of greedy child who uh, needs to be disciplined. Um, so that uh, that model is very strong and and it, it happens and it's and it stymies most proposals for for for, for social change and social improvement because they'll the always the, the thing they will say is where's the money to come from and nobody's got the answer to that nobody's got the answer. Um, uh, not within conventional models of the economy, anyway. Um, so, as the next slide shows, um, we are in a catch twenty two. If the state is assumed to be dependent on public expenditure or, or whatever the the, uh, the expenditure you want to make is depend on dependent on market funding, this leads to the problem that all all, all public as all public spending. Is funded by the private sector, any increase in public spending must require increased taxation and that that the taxation is assumed to be on this private hard-pressed taxpayer uh, taking money out of the pockets of the the hard struggling people just managing to keep their head above water. Um, To enable the market to create more taxable wealth therefore, it must have low taxes. The tax must be kept low because Otherwise um, increased taxation will, uh, will um, cr- cramp, cramp the market and the market therefore cannot create taxable wealth. Therefore the catch for the, for, the, for the public economy is the states can't increase taxes to fund more public spending without undermining the ability of the market to create that money, to fund that spending. So it needs, uh, if the market model is right, the public economy needs the market economy, but it can't tax it, or at least not in any uh, volume, because otherwise it will inhibit the tax from being the creator of wealth. Um, now, as uh, the, uh, the next slide shows, um, there is a problem with the, this model. Um, there is a conceptual problem, there's an empirical problem, but there's a political problem. Uh, with the model that all wealth comes from the market. And particularly, and, and where, where the market gets its money is, from, um, is at, at, at its most uh, simple, it's bank lending. So the bank creating new money and uh, that new money being brought into, uh, into circulation. Like if you look in the analysis I did of the growth between the 1970s up to the dot-com, dot-com boom in 2000 in, uh, say, Britain, was almost the, the, all the growth in the economy was more or less mi- mirrored by all the money taken out as, uh, as mortgage lending. So uh, it, the, uh, the, the direct borrowing of uh, the wealth that led to the boom and then the subsequent collapse um, was uh, based on mortgages. And we know it even got worse up, up until the 2007-8 crash where uh, mortgage lending was a, was, a, was a very important factor in the boom and the slump. So, therefore, if you've got, if you argue that all money comes from the market system, and that therefore, if the market system, all the money in the market system comes from bank lending, uh, the increase in the money supply, um, the the money supply will collapse if people, businesses, institutions, governments who are asked to borrow off uh, off the market sector can take no more debt or banks do not see loans as viable. So if you've got a money supply based on, on um, it was thought that the financial sector couldn't bring down the, uh, the, the, the or at least it wasn't envisaged when the, the banking crash happened in 2007-8, that the a financial um, institution like uh, Lehman Brothers collapsing would inf- affect the ATMs, the, uh, the, the money, the money um, uh, access in the high street. It was no, it was the shock and horror when they realised that the, the ATM machines, the uh, the money issue machines, would dry up in about half an hour because uh, obviously there's not that much uh, physical money in circulation anymore. It's all held in bank accounts. So um, so the it's very clearly saw in 2007 eight that the money supply coming through the bank system. The financial sector could, therefore, the link was such that the financial sector could bring down the money supply. And it did. It collapsed. And then uh, and the state had to step in, which I've come back to. But the other problem with a debt-based money system is that it's, uh, it's socially very regressive because it's socially divisive. Banks only lend to those deemed creditworthy. Uh, that is the people who already have wealth or access to wealth. And this leads to financial exclusion of the poor. And because the wealthy can use the bank lending, as we can see in Western um, financial sectors, and the fact that the financial sector has boomed during this uh, collapse, this pandemic, when the, when the, the, uh, the physical economy, the, 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 the goods and services economy has is, is, is collapsed, uh, the, 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 the rich and the billionaires are sailing away, literally, literally sailing into outer space because the wealthy can use bank lending to enhance their wealth. They can borrow to avoid tax. They can leverage buyouts of other firms. They can le- uh, borrow money to speculate, as well as borrowing for, uh, for mortgages and uh, other more, more uh, less uh, extreme ways of using it. So the debt, uh, uh, if you want to have your money supply based upon the market system, uh, then it will be based upon ultimately upon debt, the borrowing of new money into circulation, and that supply uh, is, is crisis-ridden. It is bound to boom and slump. Uh, it is unequal, it is unfair. Uh, it makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. So, um, so uh, in the, if you share in the next slide, I'll come back to my model I had before here. Um, uh, If you're developing an economy and using money or relating, thinking about money in terms of development, I'm I'm not saying it's the only factor in development by any means. Uh, I mean, there's lots more factors, but my my, uh, focus is money. Then if you you want to come out of a situation which is not organised formally by money and not based upon private power, um, uh, you want to get out of this box I've called economic domination. Uh, you've got a choice, really. Do you want to move in to enhance market forces? In which case, you want to develop a commercial banking system. Um, and I've just pointed out the problems with that, that uh, it, it has its dynamism, it has its place. Uh, you know, I'm not saying abolish markets. But a money system based upon the market is... First of all, as I've tried to show, it's based on myths. And it's also very, very uh, economically, socially, ecologically, uh, politically um, uh, uh, unstable. Uh, It it can collapse. So let's then move over to the other side of the the, uh, diagram and uh, look at this uh, instance of sovereign taxation let's look at the uh, the link between moving from economic domination or the market to sovereign taxation. Um, That is a money system that is uh, administered through the public sector, through public power, particularly the power to tax, the sovereign power to tax, which I've already uh, uh, suggested to you, puts the market system in a link between the sovereign sector and the market sector, um, in, uh, in a catch-22, the, um, the, the state can't tax the market because the market then can't provide the wealth for the state. So can the state provide the wealth for itself? That's the next question. So if you go to the next slide, we can talk about the sovereign money power, the power of the, of the, uh, the sovereign here being whoever is the ruler. Um, uh, whoever represents the public, uh, the public structure. Um, and uh, so if we look at the sovereign money in modern uh, money systems, one thing we've learned from the uh, 2007-8 crash and the pandemic is that modern money systems are ultimately a public responsibility. State monetary authorities step in when the privatised debt-based money supply fails or there are crises. Um, now, when we've seen that the, uh, the, the, the state has stepped in, the public economy has stepped in, with the progress called, known as quantitative easing, and, uh, and also increasing state spending directly. So the quantitative easing is uh, interfering and uh, trying to uh, trigger more investment in the financial sector, um, and state spending is trying to get more money in people's pockets and circulation. Uh, as in the pandemic. Um, now, where does the state get its money from? Now, the, the model we've put, pre, 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 uh, I put pre, previously, the market model, it says, well, it gets it from the market. But as I've shown, that's not true, and it's not—it's uh, problematic. So, uh, it's uh, the acknowledgement is, and it's generally being gradually um, seen as. Um, more more plausible is that the state rescue is based on the public alternative source of money that is the, that the, the it's acknowledged that the sovereign the, the sovereign power structure in a money money structured system we're not talking about raw power here we're not talking about the bottom left hand corner of the economic domination we're talking about legitimate governments that have the public Const- they they have a public constitution that uh, that enables the state that uh, has gives legitimacy to a state uh, state centred money system, and then within this there is the sovereign ability of the state to create money like the banks can create the money but this time free of debt. As the next slide shows, there is the public money circuit. Um, this is where the, uh, the 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 circuit of money comes from the state and is put into the uh, into the into circulation through public spending of a variety of things. This can be welfare states, but certainly war uh, war states, armaments, building roads to nowhere. Uh, it is you know the broad brush of public spending. And uh, the income to the state, the, the return of that circuit of money via taxation and other public incomes. Now, you might notice that the, the um, size of the arrows is, uh, is different from the bank money circuit. because This is because for most countries, most of the time, public expenditure ex- exceeds tax income. That is, there is a deficit the uh, the rules of the um uh, of the European Union, for instance, says that the deficit of three percent is, is is acceptable and expected uh, that it shouldn't go above three percent but the idea that the, that there's three percent the public can spend more than it gets in taxation in itself must mean that 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 three percent comes from the state in some way if it's not coming back in taxation of the public income now um the next slide, as I argue in the next slide, the public money system, the state spending, as I've shown in that diagram, state spending like bank lending is in a constant flow. And this is where the, uh, the deciding what is driving a money system becomes difficult. Because if you think about the bank uh, statement, the bank's uh, ser- um, circulation I showed, it could look as if deposits were driving uh, deposits returning to the bank were driving loans, or it could it could see loans were driving deposits, and it's the same with public spending. It can be said that the state is the state is the dynamic behind pushing the money around the system, or taxation is the dynamic, money, pushing the money around the system. So, therefore, um, it is it is understandable that different theories of models and circulations of of public money and bank money, because it's in a constant flow and it's constantly expanding and contracting the money supply, it is a it's a fluid system, and therefore where you break into that fluid system and say this is the, this aspect of it is causing is is the most important element. It's it's it makes it more difficult to say, but from the model of the debt um, of the debt free. Uh, um, the uh, public expenditure model, it uh, it would argue that money, the, the public sector's expenditure doesn't come from taxation and borrowing from the market sector. What it is doing is retrieving the money the state has already spent. And what that means is, what I'm trying to argue there is, public spending isn't, if public spending were based upon taxation, then it would have to wait to collect the taxes in. It would have no money. Until the taxes came in, and it would have to build up a kind of tax-funded piggy bank, a sort of a store of money, which it could then spend on, uh, on uh, public on, on public items, be they armaments or be they money for the poor and housing, etc um, but we, we everybody acknowledges that in fact, when pub- the public spends, it doesn't spend on, on, an, on an assumption that knows how much it gets in, it spends on, on a budget where it where it, uh, it aims to spend so much, aims to get so much in tax. But this is totally unpredictable. And therefore, you can never balance the books in advance. You can only see after all the money's been spent whether the uh, there is a deficit or not. Therefore, balancing the books is always post hoc. It's always after the event. Um. And what is never put hardly, I, I hardly ever see this put into the model of money and the circulation of money and public spending, is this public expenditure itself. If it is created by debt-free money issued by the state, is also a source of tax and wealth, which uh, just in the English language, uh, I just, for uh, uh, to stress the idea of the welfare state, I spell it wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H, uh, just because it works in the English language. Uh, that wealth becomes well-being, as it were. But the, the the public sector pays its taxes; it counts in GDP. So why do we treat it as a as as, as a as a uh, a liability of the of the market sector when it contributes to GMP GDP like the market sector? Um, I've never understood why. Uh, well, I, I do understand why, because the theory of market sector is that all wealth and all money comes from the market. Therefore, anything the state does is a is a is a is a, uh, a burden on the market. But if you see the state as having the ability to create money in its own right, as opposed to having to borrow it through the banking system, then um, then that explains uh, where the additional money comes from, and uh, uh, and. Uh, the, the public spending becomes a source of tax, a source of GDP, uh, a source of wealth and well-being. Um, so that is uh, uh, the model. Um, so uh, the next as I argue in the next slide, uh, we can take a take there is a lot of theory in the textbooks about the market economy. Not, to, not too much about money in the market economy, that's taken for granted. But there's a lot of theories about uh, the origins of markets and, and barter systems and gold and silver and all this sort of um, assumption about the superiority of markets markets being the most uh, efficient form of economy you could ever ever have um, if we set up an alternative model of sovereign money then that uh, doesn't see money as being determined by the market it sees the public organization via money as state authority over the money system. And as is generally accepted, but not really theorized as to the implications of it, that most states, it's, it's understood, most states issue and control the public currency. They print the banknotes. they mint the coins. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and I would argue they set up the bank balances and, uh, and other forms of modern money. Um, the power behind uh, the sovereign power of the state, the legitimized power of the state, uh, is to command resources. So it doesn't, it's not uh, economic domination, it's money domination. Um, it's not, uh, there are states uh, who, obviously many states who, who terrorize and, uh, and um, uh, exploit their populations. Um, but uh, the the ones I'm uh, the states I'm talking about is where the the um, m- taxation system is is uh, accepted and operates well enough so that the state can command resources and labor through legitimized access to people's labor and resources and uh, uh, and can uh, be exercised through, through the taxation system. Now what is important is in the balance between the history of markets and sovereign um, state systems is that the history of money is basically a history of states because markets are comparatively recent. The invention of, of the gold and silver coin was about 600 BCE. Um, it was used by Alexander the Great in the 300 BCE to, uh, to pay his mercenaries to fight his campaigns and his imperial um, exercises. It, it's a, it, a huge amounts of silver coin he used to pay, pay mercenaries to launch his, uh, his imperial um, ambitions. And uh, the history of money has been uh, really a, a history of, of states of different uh, models of. of um, of, of, of governance. Uh, usually, obviously, in most of history, autocratic sovereign authorities, monarchies, empires, theocracies. Um, so, uh, so the history of money, and the history of gold and silver particularly, is a history of empires, a history of states. It's a history of, of powerful, powerful monetary authorities. And even to this day, it's accepted that it's um, banks, uh, central banks, who, who, who have the stores of whatever gold and silver countries still have. Um, so there's a kind of um, mismatch in, in the theory of modern uh, economies and relation to money. That The role of the state is sidelined. And yes, it's, yet it's massive. And yes, it's acknowledged that uh, the state is the creator of the public currency and guardian of the public wealth when it's uh, gold and silver. So I've, um, you know, I, I've, 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 I'm always surprised at how little understanding there is between the state circuit of money and the, uh, and the private circuit of money. So the next slide takes us to the dilemma for modern, uh, theories of modern money. Is, it, is modern money, or is it and should it be, uh, the modern uh, the state who creates who does create or should create the uh, the modern money supply or should the market be um, enabled to create or or command the, the 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 modern money supply and this comes down to really should development embrace the market in a debt-based money supply such as uh, put forward of a, uh, under neoliberalism through uh, the IMF restructuring models, or should we aim uh, in development to uh, bypass the market and increase public democratic power over the money system? now obviously uh, I say yes to that that it should be it should be that if you 've got a choice between uh, debt or democracy then um, then uh, it was more uh, more beneficial to think about democracy. So as I come back to, in my next slide, I come back to my model that I've used several times here. Uh, We reject economic domination. Uh, I can't think any development process would want to um, encourage economic domination and raw power, raw private power. Um, I would think that most... um, uh, development models would want to have a rational approach to the uh, use of the, the power of money and the organizing principle of money. I've mentioned the limitations of market forces. Uh, there are positive and negatives about market forces. Market forces are, are okay uh, for you know what they can produce in society, but if they become the dominant ideological force, as in neoliberalism, I think they become uh, they, they start to build uh, huge structures of inequality and uh, and go against the promises that markets can bring all things to everybody, which is what they legitimize themselves on. Um, sovereign taxation, of course, um, is, uh, is is the oldest form of money and continued form of money. It isn't the same as the uh, money from the market. It has its own dynamic, but uh, the two interact. And um, the one that I'm, I'm aiming towards is uh, economic democracy. So I want to, to come on to that. In summary, I'd say in my next slide. The next slide. There, we're, we're told, uh, is, is we can, uh, I'm summarizing my fact that, unlike people who say, I don't know if they say in the, the Pakistan situation, There's no magic money trees, but we often get told in uh, Western economies and Britain is very much keeps talking about magic. There is no magic money trees. We've got to work hard for our money. No magic money trees. Uh, Money is in short supply. There's only so much to go around. Uh, Any money the public spends is lost to the market sector, etc. This is all nonsense. Modern money is not in short supply. There's no shortage of paper. There's no shortage of metal to make coins. There's no shortage of computer ble- um, bleeps to make, uh, to make uh, to, there's no shortage of, uh, of, of numbers to put into bank accounts. It, it's not, it, it, it isn't gold and silver. There's, a, there's as much money as we choose to have. And uh, new money is constantly created by banks when they lend and states when they spend. Now, both are open to abuse. To say money is not in short supply isn't to say that money is infinite, they're they're, they're not the same thing. There is, in in a rational money system, there is as much money as you need to to meet the goods and services that your people need. Um, It it isn't the money that determines how much uh, we, we can do it's how much we want to do that determines how much money we need. And therefore, the model's got to be... Um, next slide, please. The model has got to be the democratisation of money. What we need to do is to think of money as a democratic resource, a public resource, not just a market phenomenon. Um, so now part of that is to reject uh, the modern uh, theories of money in markets and reclaim the history of the sovereign power to create money. Uh, that is, that it is, the, it, is the, the, it is state power that is most aligned with money, money organisation, money systems, long before markets became dominant. But to, to say that the history of the money system, particularly coinage, There are many money systems through the history of human societies, but the one that's come to dominate us is coinage, which then paper money and then computer money and so and so on. Um, By by, uh, arguing that money doesn't just come from the market, money comes equally as much from the the state, from the, the public power. This does not be, that's not the same as democracy. Money has been administered by, power, by state powers through history, and the majority of them until very modern times listen, were not at all democratic. Therefore, the fact that sovereign money exists, that, that the state, states through history have controlled money systems, particularly coinage systems, and particularly precious metal systems, that sovereign money, the power for the sovereign to create money, must become public money. That is, it must be democratised. And the 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 heart of this I see is public budgeting. That is, the public is not should not be saying how much money have we got, what can we do with it. The public should be saying what is the needs of our people, and how can we draw up a money system that enables those to be met, the, the needs of the people to be met to a decent standard. Therefore, and and to, to get to that point, to democratise that, I mean, all, 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 all states make budgets, we're very used to state budgeting. Um, but uh, um, the, uh, the idea that budget is, 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 is uh, something which is, is the most important thing a state can do, the most important thing a state can do is make a budget because that decides its priorities, it decides its values, Uh, in its motivations, its aims. And therefore, that is where democracy should be. Democracy shouldn't be just about voting people into your uh, government system, I mean, not to stop doing that. But where the population should be, have maximum political involvement, should be drawing up budgets because this is the heart of modern democracy. Um, Therefore, the model I would put forward as the most important aspect of any kind of economic development, I want to stress this very importantly for economic development, should be, should be based upon a move towards participatory budgeting and monitoring and evaluation of public expenditure. The public expenditure must be at the, 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 the democratic involvement of, of in public, public budgeting should be the heart of, 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 of modern democracy. Um, so in the, I show this in, in the next diagram. This is how I see participatory budgeting working. Obviously a government has to make a budget. It can't just devolve all all decisions to a local citizens assembly or whatever model of of participation you want. But um, the way I would see it is the the government's task is to make budget proposals. This is a double arrow going to the left there with public participation. That is the government budget should make its proposals, but should make its proposals in dialogue with the public, uh, public participation. Um, that is it should, at all levels, the public should feed into what they see as their needs and, need, uh, and the, the hierarchy of those needs, the, um, the priorities. So the state with maximum public participation draws up a budget. Now, then becomes the question of, well, if, if the state, and, and this is new money, this is the state, by allocating a budget heading, the state is, is, is creating money in, in the same way as when a, when a bank sets up a mortgage account for somebody to buy a house, uh, they are creating new money. So any, any budget the government sets is new money. But obviously money doesn't come without its, um, its implications, which I'll deal with a bit later. Therefore, the, uh, the when the government has drawn up its budget proposals in dialogue with, the, with its population, it should then take that budget to the central bank to try and assess the monetary impact that a stat, that budget will have on the market. Um, because obviously a lot of the public expenditure will flood into the market, as the public sector, people in the public sector spend their money in the, in the, in the market sector. Um, so the task of the central bank is to, is to try and assess how that level of public expenditure will impact upon the existing market system. Will it flood it? Will it finance it? Uh, it, needs to, uh, it needs to make an assessment. And the assessment really is on what level of retrieval the government should have to retrieve how much of that money from the market, or from, from the, not from the market, from the circulation, both in the public and private sectors. How much money should that get? The government is putting, through a budget, a certain amount of money into circulation. How much money does it need to take out of circulation to match or, or, or to stop that money having a great impact? on, um, on uh, the market sector. So the central bank, m- bank makes that uh, assessment of the monetary impact on the market system of that level of public expenditure. This then is fed back to the government so that it can pr- make its proposals upon tax. But that is another point about uh, which the democracy comes back in because the government doesn't just, shouldn't just set its tax wherever it wants, it should open up a public dialogue with its population about, well, we've got to get so many, such a sum of money back in taxation. Who should we tax? How should we tax? What are the principles of taxation? Um, and uh, so that, that should be fed back. That's a two-way dialogue between the government and the people. So that is my model of participatory budgeting. Government are drawing up a budget with maximum public participation, Having a technical assessment of the monetary impact of that level of spending, therefore uh, a, 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 a universal sum, a total sum of how much money needs to be retrieved and uh, public participation, how that should be done. Uh, if you move to the next slide. The, the most immediate thing that will come immediately is probably going through all your minds now. Well, won't that public money create co- uh, the money creation cause inflation? Well, the first point I want to make is that by retheorizing the uh, and recognizing the public circuit of money doesn't alter the present system. It doesn't, of itself, increase the amount of money in the system because uh, it's merely re- uh, retheorizing. Um, rejecting the neoliberal uh, market domination approach and putting in a much more balanced view of of how the current money system operates. Um, And uh, it it needs to be recognised that it's not just um, uh, public uh, expenditure that can be inflationary. Uh, Bank uh, expenditure uh, builds booms and slumps constantly and is seen as being an integral part of it. That it's... uh, that in fact it, it it does go in booms and slumps, and uh, and uh, the, the asset values um, which aren't uh, aren't seen often as, as inflationary. Uh, the consumer price is seen as being a big guide to inflation, but uh, the fact that the rich uh, sit on massive assets in asset in value increases in their shares, or in their paintings, or in their houses isn't seen as a problem. So uh, the um, So my view of the public nature of money doesn't alter the current money system, but it opens up to challenge that the the bank money system has as many, and if not more problems, than the public money system. Now, the important thing about the model I've put forward of participatory budgeting is that taxation is seen as both monetary and fiscal. That is that I don't separate the monetary question from the fiscal question. The, uh, The fiscal question is about models of tax and spendings, priorities, and uh, the money is the money that uh, is um, is created or not uh, by that level of of spending. And this is because the relevant balance is not the one that the neoliberals insist on, that the, the, the government must balance its budgets between taxing and spending, that is its fiscal balance. The balance I'm pointing to that needs to be monitored by the central bank is between the state and the market. So the fiscal system is absolutely in- integral to the monetary system and the monetary system is integral to the fiscal system. There, is, there, there isn't the, uh, the difference that is, uh, um, uh, that is, uh, that is always stipulated. Um, but this re- raises another question on the next slide. Is a critical role of the central bank. The central bank is at the heart of the ambiguity about the money systems, the money system circulating through the banking sector and the money system circulating through the state. And the central bank supplies is the ultimate legitimator. It doesn't actually supply any money at all. It just, uh, it just legitimates the system and adds numbers here and there. Uh, it, uh, in a, whether it adds the numbers to the to the banking sector or adds numbers to the state sector, it's still just adding adding numbers. Um, and this nonsense, this neoliberal nonsense of the independence of central banks, that somehow they're being neutral as between the state and the market, uh, is, uh, is, is to me an absolute nonsense. It's just a way of of harnessing by the banking system of harnessing. Central banks to the banking sector and away from the state, and a part of this and central of this is we must clarify the status and challenge the idea that the state has to borrow the money from the market sector to cover any deficit. Why is it borrowing when it can create money in its own right? In its own right, that can only be market ideology, um, and certainly it, it shouldn't be borrowing from the central bank. Central Bank is an agent of the, of the, of the public economy. It is, the, it is, the, it is the, um, the focus of the public giving a, a legitimation and authenticity to, uh, to, a, to a, a, an authority. It is just an acknowledged authority. And uh, who eventually backs the banking system, etc. Are, po- are the people, the population as a whole, private and public. So, the state should in no way be seen as borrowing from the central bank. And in fact, borrowing, borrowing from the market just creates a, 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 a safe harbour for, 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 for the money of the wealthy when really they should be returning it in taxation. Therefore, uh, I, as I see it, a pub, an acknowledgement of the public, of public money and that, the, that money is a public resource and a public issue, is that the central bank should be administrating the money system as a public resource for publicly determined purposes. Can I have the next slide, please? So, in summary, I see that there is a choice here in the development process between debt or democracy. I think it's very important to reclaim and democratise the sovereign power to create money free of debt. I don't see uh, the public as as necessarily, as I've said before, as necessarily democratic. It can be highly authoritarian, exploitative and corrupt. But money must be seen as a public resource, not a private matter. Therefore, banking should be democratised as a public utility. It is creating and expanding the money supply by preferential treatment of the already wealthy as opposed to the poor, and therefore it should be a public utility and able to, uh, to, to balance its, its input to the different sectors of the population. We should democratise public spending through participatory budgeting, and democratising the money system would enable socially just and sustainable, what I call, sufficiency provisioning. Enough for all, not too much for some and too little for others. And provisioning, rather than economy, because lots of uh, the uh, provisioning of uh, the public li- of, of, of human life goes outside of the market sector. So it's not just the economy. Uh, as I say in the next slide, here let's look at the, uh, at the way we can envisage the future, or how this current system operates and the possibilities for the future. We can make a a distinction between the monetized part of the economy, which I've already been doing, and the non-monetized. We can make a distinction between the for-profit approach, the market sector, and the not-for-profit, the public approach. So on the top layer where we've got the activities for profit, we've got the monetized market, which I've spent a good time talking about, but we've got the non-monetized things that still give profit to, uh, to participants and to dominant groups in that sector. These are the externalities of the ecosystem that's, um, that, that's treated as a free gift or unpaid labor. Um, basically, they're mostly domestic labor, caring uh, activities. Um, these can be, uh, they're, they're not monetized, but they still contribute to the profitability of the monetized sector. Coming down to the bottom part of that diagram, we've got the, um, uh, the monetized, not for profit public and social economies, the more formal economies, uh, which is the uh, one of the sectors that I would be hoping we would move towards, a, a democratic public and social economy. But also to move to the, uh, to the, to the bottom right hand, where we where we acknowledge the non-monetized, but not for profit what's often called the care economy or the intrinsic value of nature. In the next slide, I I summarise the benefits of participatory budgeting in terms of that previous diagram. bringing in the people uh, uh, as citizens into decision-making brings in whole people, not just what I've called economic man, that is who may be a woman, um, who just operates on market principles, on uh, transactional principles. So we've got to think of the whole person, the whole of their life, not their working life or their, uh, or their pensions or whatever it might be, but the whole person from birth to death. We, we must bring in the whole economy. It, uh, these include all the provisioning sectors of nature, the, uh, the value nature gives to us that we don't acknowledge, or unpaid labour or the quality of uh, conviviality in communities, support. Uh, it bring, it uh, hopefully would bring in the whole community, the diversity of groups, not just have uh, some single uh, uh, dimensions of hierarchical groupings, that the whole community can be brought together. And that we also can address the whole human life in nature, the embedded and embodiedness of human beings in their in their physical bodies and in the in the environment, so the the provisioning becomes expressed as a right to livelihood, and this includes a right to livelihood for nature. Therefore, I would hope that uh, a participatory budgeting system would provide an income for nature, for the for the to 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 do all the works needed to uh, to uh, bring nature into. Resilience uh, that we've been undermining so much. Next slide. And uh, these are the publications upon which I've based this talk. Um, The the book of more recent more recent book has been the um, uh, the uh, uh, exploring the limitations of neoliberal approaches to money systems and try to set out this new model of the sovereign. Power of money that I've been trying to do. Uh, the uh, what 215 book uh, makes the case uh, for participatory budgeting. Uh, debt the debt instead of uh, debt that we've abandoned debt as determining force and go for democratic public money as I've been talking about here. And uh, 2010 that was my analysis of the 2007 uh, eight financial crash and the way we could use that crash to move from the dominance of finance and its crises to seeing money as a public resource. Thank you.
0: It's a very interesting and a very good new approach to money, and uh, certainly I think we'll have a lot of questions. Please, folks, raise your hands and I'll take you and I'll just ask one question, Professor Miller, and then I'll take questions from the floor. I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, and yes, it's a, it's a good conception. But you're saying, let's get away from private money to public money and let public money be um, um, be the guiding principle with, along with your democratic budgeting and thing. But Professor Mela, I have a fundamental problem. Yes, we can move to narrow banking and we can move to public finance, create money. Uh, but I have a fundamental problem here, which I think pervades economic thinking in general, where we assume that everything that the state does is good. Unfortunately, living where I do, and living where I did live, which is the U.S., I'm not quite sure whether the state is the benign entity that you're looking at. If Trump comes into power, I'm not sure he'll be as benign as uh, as your model suggests. And certainly, living here or I've lived, another place like Africa or whatever, um, as Asimov and Robinson say, it's a, it's a. Um, Extractive government that we have here—it's a, or as um, um, Mankur also says, it's a—you um, know—predatory government. Now, if in your model, how do you fit that in—the nature of the government? Because certainly, one of the problems that we've had in our seventy years of independence—to turn over the colonial state from its extractive state to a more benevolent state—and unfortunately, we failed. Every which way we go, we fail. So, how do you how do you respond to that?
1: Um, well, I think I made it uh, quite ple- clear in what i said that I see the, 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 sovereign, um, the sovereign economy, the, the ability of, of a, a state to have the authority to tax. And I think I'm, I, I have made that distinction between the gross raw power. You can have states that are the bully and, and, and uh, have raw power and corruption. I made that point. So when, uh, in my top right-hand box... I've got states that are that have sufficient legitimacy and authority, so they are they are the, the they are functioning states, as it were. Now I don't make any assumption those states are benign. Mm-hmm. That's why I make the point that the sovereign economy isn't the same as the public economy, isn't the same as the democratic economy. But uh, we can't harness the market for good, because we depend on the philanthropy of the market, and we know that the, the as we've seen in these crises, that the, the rich are just accumulating wealth hand over fist. I mean, there are there are philanthropists, obviously, but it's not, it's not a it, in the same way as states aren't necessarily democratic and caring. Markets aren't necessarily philanthropic. They they allow people to make private choices about whether to be bene, you know to be beneficial to others. So, in saying that the that the there is a there is a sovereign economy. Uh, doesn't mean to say that I see that as benign in any way. That's why it has to be... There's a limit to how much you can democratise the market because by definition it's private decision-making. So what we've got to go at is public decision-making and democratising that because that is the way we we can have in. So I'm by no means make benign assumptions about the state. Not at all. That's why I, I argue for economic democracy.
0: Okay. Great. Thank you. Let me go to the floor. Naseem Beg, sir.
2: Naseem Beg? Uh, Yes. Um, uh, Professor, thank you very much for the talk. I have read the two two of your more recent books. Uh, Two or three, I would say, if you could elaborate, please. One, the universal basic income, especially for a country like Pakistan, where there are a lot of people excluded from the economic benefits, uh, and including women. That's one point. The other point that you make in your book, and if you could elaborate on that, is uh, the banking system, when it creates money, it takes money back, including interest. Therefore, it would shrink money supply and uh, stagnate the economy. Therefore, it needs to keep boring or lending more and then and, and we have this consumerism and denuding of the, of the earth. So the, just those two points if you'd like to uh, elaborate a bit on.
1: Yes, um, uh, I, I certainly think if you've got a problem with imbalance of imbalance of access to money in an economy, there is the case for giving um, uh, 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 some kind of immediate income, of, give money, I, 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 I quote the book about give money to the people, and I think the, the best way to, to, uh, to get, um, end financial exclusion to the, to the poorest is just to give them the money so they can participate. Um, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the universal basic income is, is, uh, is, is really the most useful way of doing it. I, would prefer, I think uh, I prefer the idea of universal basic services you make sure that everybody has, set, uh, has, has available the, the, the services they need: clean water, housing, etc, and that you, um, you, you, you set a, a, a lower limit, uh, um, sorry, uh, uh, a basic level of level of income that people should have. So rather than spreading that money universally, I would say make sure that nobody falls under a particular level of income so that you, 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 you monetize the poorest so they get a, a, an adequate level of income. So that's how I would, I would deal with that. Also, I think it's very important that it's new money. It's no good rolling up other, other benefits or, or expenditure on welfare and then folding that all into a basic income. So I, um, uh, so I think giving people the money giving people an income, a basic standard of livelihood, is the most important thing rather than the universal, uh, this universal income. Um, the, uh, the the question of lending into the economy, um, I, I, don't, I don't know whether your question is alluding to the, uh, the model, like the Islamic model, where you don't have interest, um, but... <coughs> Uh, I didn't I, mean the
2: Islamic I, concept. Uh, what you wrote in your book was that when the banks take back money, the money supply will shrink. Therefore, they're forced to keep lending more. Yes, and that yes. leads to consumerism and that leads to the all the climate change and all, all the ills that we see.
1: Yeah, yes. But that's that's if you rely entirely for your for your budget, uh, for your money supply on bank lending. By definition, if people are not borrowing, then the money's not circulating. And if if, as you got when the financial crisis that people kept paying off their debts, who could pay off their debts, but no new debts were coming out, the money supply shrank dramatically. I think it rose by something coming up to 20 percent in the build up to the crisis 2007 and it collapsed by about 20 percent in the period afterwards. So, um, so uh, you, you have to keep the circuit going. But uh, I, I assume also it's important to keep the public circuit going as well. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, um, uh, I, I stand by what I said. I I I, I don't, uh, you know, you have to keep lending and and uh, to keep the money supply going. Uh, if if you've got a debt-based or, or a bank-led money system, I perhaps I shouldn't say debt-based because I think a bank-led money system has the same dynamics whether you pay interest or not.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we... G, Can you hear me? Ji, we can hear you now. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, uh, Mary Miller. Uh, it was a very enlightening and eye-opening kind of... Uh, uh, presentation and uh, I'm really impressed that you are in favor of uh, public interest and uh, my question to you is uh, what do you think about these new kind of uh, alternative money uh, bitcoin and nfts how do they help the um, you know socially deprived people or is it a good form of uh, money to have in the
1: world? Right. Um, I'll, I'll make a distinction between complementary currencies, local, local currencies, and inventions like Bitcoin. Now, the, to me, they're completely opposite ends of, of, the, of what the aim is. The aim of complementary currencies, local, local money, local, local funds, uh, of like um, let schemes and all those things, they're all trying to set up um, systems to use money to, to the, the, whatever their money form is, to build local economies and to build, uh, and to build the, common, the, the, the social commons. Um, so, so to me, to me the, you know, the, they're, um, they're good learning experiences. I I I'm, I think it's more important to democratize the, the, the national currency system rather than trying to invent a new one, but I but I think the the commitment and the and the aims of the local currencies the complementary currency systems are totally benign totally useful and they teach people a lot about money. <clears throat> now the 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 cryptocurrencies I see as entirely different. Um, to me the the um, the, uh, the cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin to me are, are, are just imbued totally with neoliberal values. Um, they're, they're built on the model of gold and silver, the idea of, uh, of, of commodity money. Um, they, uh, they, they set artificial limits, Bitcoin sets its artificial limit of 21 million. Um, they, uh, they, they seek to anonymize and, and destroy communities. So you can remotely deal with uh, as a money system uh, with people who have no social identity at all. They pride themselves that you can't be recognized. And therefore, to me, it's it's an atomized neo neoliberal um, uh, model of of a false total mythology of what money is. And uh, and it's failing anyway, because the ultimate point I make, which I haven't made in my talk is that I think the ideal money in, is, uh, should have no value whatsoever and should merely be a, compa- a means of c- comparing one thing with another. Not, no, it shouldn't embody absolute values at all. It should be as... as, as uh, you know, my ideal is the euro note, which just has a number on it. It doesn't mention a bank, it doesn't mention a state, it just mentions a number. I know it's got other faults. I'm not saying this makes it a good system, but uh, as far as its money goes, it, it's, it's got it down to the absolute minimum, which is just you a note with a number on. Um, whereas uh, uh, Bitcoin and things are, um, are uh, setting set themselves up as a commodity and they're, they're as a commodity, they're going through the roof with a completely Ponzi speculative nonsense. And therefore, the more it sets itself up as a commodity currency, the less useful it is the currency anyway. So to me, it's the it's a the cryptocurrencies a chronic diversion, and uh, I, I don't mind using computer systems to to circulate the money we've got. But the idea of, of inventing a whole new cryptocurrency that exists only as a as a, as a non-downloadable uh, asset is to me is 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 a, is a nonsense and. Uh, uh, in fact, I've just been reading uh, someone who's done a study of, um, of a particular uh, cryptocurrency trying to set up an alternative local currency via cryptocurrency, so trying to meld the two, the two models, and uh, they're getting inundated with people asking uh, what, is the, uh, what is the price of, 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 the, of the currency and can they make money on it, so it's bringing completely the wrong, the wrong values. Cryptocurrencies are bringing completely the wrong values to a money system, and therefore they're terribly reactionary.
0: Muhammad <clears throat> Khuram, Yes, uh,
3: good evening. Um, I feel honored to be part of this discussion. And I just want to ask uh, Professor uh, Mary that uh, <coughs> the, uh, the monetary instruments like um, the interest rates are one of the monetary instruments. The short-term interest rate and long-term interest rate. So, so I want to ask that can a link be established between these uh, monetary uh, interest rates and the tax avoidance? If we uh, talk about like in, in an empirical way, and if possible, I um, could you also refer to me any good uh, paper which could help? Um, Giving that's that's all. Thank you.
1: I, I'm sorry. I you were breaking up a little bit, and I couldn't. Uh...
3: Okay, I, I will. I will. I will uh, repeat my question. So my question is, Professor, that the monetary instruments. Uh, one of them is the uh, short-term interest rate, and the other one is the long-term interest rate. Like yeah. um, the short-term interest rate is the um, policy rate, and um, just my. Question is, in your opinion, the these instruments do they influence the tax avoidance, the tax avoidance of the um, corporate sector, and if like these interest rates of the uh, monetary side, if they influence this uh, corporate tax avoidance, um, yeah. if possible, could you give me any empirical evidence if it if it's if there is so. I hope you got my uh, question.
1: Yeah, I, I have. Um, I, I, I don't have expertise in what you're asking, and I, I, I don't have any empirical evidence about that. Um, all I know is, and this I don't think is answering your question, because it's really about tax avoidance, which uh, the link between interest rates and tax avoidance, about which I don't have any expertise. Um, but what, what amazed me is that in the financial crash, when countries were bailing out their banks like mad and countries like Portugal and Spain were, um, were, were uh, sh- and Ireland were showing great collapses, um, and Greece particularly, um, that people were, pi- people were piling in to, to buy the debts off those countries, even though they were in, in deep straits, because of all the, the, the available assets at that point in time, the, the state was was seen as the as the one that was the safest of all, which shows that in a in a crisis, which is the most important economy, the public economy or the private economy, and people voted with their feet in the financial crisis, and countries and, and companies poured their money into 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 states because uh, they saw them as as safer. But I don't know where this fits into tax avoidance. Um, I, uh, I, as I say, I, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't have the expertise or, or the knowledge in, in yes. that area.
0: Thank you. It's okay. uh, so about thank you. About hello, can am I audible? Yeah, you are. Okay, uh, I just had a quick question about um, the idea of um, participatory budgeting. Um, how does something like that uh, take place um, in practice? Is it through the electoral cycle, where citizens will rank order the various uh, sectors—education, healthcare, infrastructure, and so on? How does that happen, like in in actuality? Thank you.
1: Um, I see that not, not linked to the electoral cycle because we've got that now, really, where people uh, where governments indicate where their expenditure will be and people if, if people can, can vote for that party or government or not that's too blunt an instrument it's got to be uh, fine filters really and uh, I think it's got to be through various forms of citizen assembly of uh, um, use user user and uh, and uh, sup, uh, supplier um, panels um, of uh, of Different forms of of lo- local participatory selection. So, for instance, uh, the, the the health service. Go think of Britain. The health service, a, a panel made up of all of stakeholders in the health service, would would uh, would talk about the uh, the needs of their immediate uh, location, the hospitals that they run, and these should be amalgamated. Communities should uh, have uh, should, uh, could um, uh, citizens assemblies could be drawn by. Uh, randomly inviting people uh, from the community to, to um, come and state their needs and whether they think they're adequately funded. So I think it, there, are lo- there are lots of um, a, a models of, of participatory models, um, uh, which, um, uh, as I say, the, the one I that's most useful, I think, is Citizen Assembly. But it, this this is where I see it breaking down the kind of, tribal structures of, of parties where uh, people identify with different um, political groups or ethnic groups or whatever and it would bring across um, a, a, a representation of the of the uh, local community uh, across the board um, by by randomised selection of people and as citizens assemblies do. So uh, I think if people are, are given the, the chance to participate in, 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 and it becomes known that there is a regular ongoing debates about budgets, then I think people will readily, readily join in and, and directly participate. I think it uh, should be hearing the authentic voices of people in their communities, in their organisations, in their structures. Uh, where they can talk about their funding and whether they need more or or need it redirected or they think it's being misappropriated, I think it's the the democracy's got to be that basic and there are lots and lots of people working on this, this area, so uh, that's what I would recommend.
0: Thank you, Nazim Begstad.
2: Yes. Uh, So, Professor, one other question, which is uh, the derivatives market, the futures market, whereby people can put in a small deposit and and do a transaction uh, worth uh, a very significant size. Do you see that as temporary money creation, which then causes the boom and
1: bust? Well, I I would completely ban any partial payments or, or, or hedging in terms of something you are not directly involved in, like taking a gamble on Greek debt or whatever, as people you did in the, in the crisis. Okay, and you I answered was, my question, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I would like to make one we haven't mentioned, and that is I would put a timescale on which you have to hold, um, to hold shares. You have to have them for at least a, 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 a day, a week, a month, or three months, or whatever it means to stop the churning of uh, of, um, of uh, shares, you know, the, the trading on the margins, I think has got to be just just um, banned.
0: Hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Mella. It's been a great discussion. I think it's a, a, a great new system. We should look into it and talk about it and think about it. Um, the underpinnings of this are profound and we should obviously um study it and look into it thank you very much for giving us your time we'll call on you again to talk about sustainable cities your other passion and hopefully learn from you there as well thank you again
1: uh, uh, thank you thank you for uh, thank you for your interest in my work and for everybody who's uh, been reading and thinking about my ideas i'm very i'm very encouraged thank you thank you to everybody thank
0: you all the best good night
3: good night